open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, our focus this morning will be on verses 421 through 51. Galatians 421 through 51. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will handle this text rightly, because if we don't, it will, could mean us handling many other texts poorly. And so for the sake of your name, for the sake of us being conformed to Christ, for the sake of us obeying you and rightly handling your word, have mercy on we sinners deserving nothing of your grace. And for the sake of Christ, grant your spirit to teach us now and lead us into truth. In Jesus' name I ask this, amen. Perhaps after reading this, thinking what just happened, you would like to add your consent to John Stott's comment that many people regard this as the most difficult passage in the epistle of Galatians. You may think that Paul's hermeneutic, that's his method of interpretation, here 
is much different than that, than that which we've observed throughout chapter 3. Or, you might think his style a bit sloppy. While Paul's passion in this letter is so intense that there are sentences that are incomplete, thoughts that are just left hanging for you to tease out the implications thereof, I think it'd be a mistake not to see divine intentionality in every stroke. And it would be even more tragic if you thought that Paul's hermeneutic here is less than desirable. Or that it's then permissible to play loose with the Scripture as you think Paul might do here. It's somehow okay to mess up in the same way that Paul is messing up here. As a way of dealing with these difficulties, let's ask ourselves this. Why is this text here? Paul's normal pattern throughout his letters is to bring before us the indicative first and then the imperative. The indicative or the declarative. First he tells us what God has done. Who He is. He lays down theology before he goes on to make any kind of application or commands or exhortation. First the indicative, then the imperative. And so we've seen that Paul lays down the bulk of his theological argument for the central premise of this letter, justification by faith alone, in chapter 3, going into chapter 4 and being summed up pretty quickly in chapter 4 to give way to this personal appeal that we've just dealt with. Become as I am, for I as you. And so with that personal appeal, in verse 12, you may think Paul has now made a turn towards the exhortation and command portion of this letter. I appeal to you, brothers, become as I am, for I as you. Okay, we can expect exhortations from this point out. But then, Paul resumes his argument again. And so, is this just some kind of postscript? Oh yeah, I forgot kind of instance. Paul's passion leading to some kind of disorganization. That might be so, but I, I wouldn't make much of it. Why is this passage here? One, it builds on his argument that he's laid down up to this point. In such a way that this is not the kind of argument to lead with, but it's a good one to conclude with. Paul's hermeneutic is a bit different here. We'll talk about exactly what Paul's doing in a bit. And so it's good to conclude with after having laid down the doctrines as he has in chapter 3 in the beginning of chapter 4 to then put this on top of them. I wouldn't lead with it. That's a good one to conclude with. It's one reason. Number two, it not only builds on all those arguments, it sums them up powerfully. But why is it here after this personal exhortation? Third, I think it gets at the perplexity he's expressing in verse 20. 
I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, have you not read the law? The question expresses his perplexity. And then fourth, I think the one that really helps you get at why it's here, is understanding he's resumed an argument here for the sake of exhortation. All of this argument is recapitulating. It's grabbing everything he said in a sense and leveraging this central application that he wants to make. So Paul has made a turn from his indicative portion of the letter to the imperative, but he's grabbing at all the indicatives so he can with full force command them, stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 5 and verse 1. So, I think that's why it's here. And while there are elements that can confuse us with this passage, when you begin to look at it, as far as its outline, it's really simple. That part comes into just these three natural pieces very easily. Paul lays down the historical, verses 21 through 23. He unfolds the typological. Explain that word in a bit for you. In verses 24 through 27. And then he makes it personal in verses 28 through 31 before coming to the conclusion of that exhortation in 5.1. And the historical opens up with this rhetorical question. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paul speaks to the Judaizers as Jesus so often did to the Pharisees. How delicious are those passages where Jesus asked the Pharisees, Have you never read? It's like accusing the distinguished scholar sitting in some prestigious chair at a renowned institution of learning of having completely missed the point of that field which is his speciality. Have you never read? And here come the Judaizers. What What is their emphasis? The law? And Paul asks, have you never read the law? If anyone wants to be under the law, this much is blatantly obvious. They don't get it. The chap who seeks to be an expert on the law and also insists that that means coming under the law demonstrates he has failed to pass the test of the pedagogue of the law. As Paul has shown us in 3.24-4.7, the law is meant as an instructor, as a disciplinarian to bring you to Christ. Claiming to understand the law and wanting to be under it is like a person claiming to be an expert in algebra because they've taken remedial courses for years. 
Enjoying flunking a course doesn't make you an expert at it. Jesus told the Jews, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The real experts in the law don't want to talk law. They want to talk Jesus. Paul's opening rebuke of these false teachers spoke of them distorting the true gospel such that it's no gospel. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The false teachers have not only, you see now, distorted the gospel, they've distorted God's law. They don't understand either. In fact, their failure to to grasp the gospel indicates that they haven't grasped the law. And so to demonstrate this, Paul puts forward the historical example of Abraham. He's drawing this from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that the Jews and the Scriptures themselves designate as technically the law. And so he puts forth that Abraham had two sons. Now, if you want to get technical, he had at least six others by his wife Keturah. And depending on how you read that text that mentions Keturah, I think there are probably more than that because Genesis 25, 1-6 speaks of him, Keturah being his wife, but then speaks of other concubines that he sent away. So... You need to understand that Paul is not wanting to be exhaustive here. Rather, he's teasing out the theological significance that the text itself wants to bring to bear on our mind. Genesis is structured by a series of genealogies introduced by the phrase, every one of them, it's a real specific phrase, these are the generations of. Unfortunately, when most people come to that phrase, Their eyes roll, they yawn, and they buckle up to endure. And they miss miss the significance of what the Scriptures are trying to say there. The first genealogy you come to isn't introduced by that phrase. Genesis 4, you have the line of Cain, but the one that follows it immediately... In chapter 5 of Genesis are the generations of Adam which follows his lineage through Seth. You notice how it just discounted Cain altogether. You want to know the generations of Adam? You don't look to Cain. You look to Seth. The next one you come to is in Genesis 10 where you have the lineage of Ham and then Shem. You go forward, Genesis 25, the generations of Ishmael precede the generations of Isaac. Then Genesis 36, you have the generations of Esau. Chapter 37 of Genesis, the generations of Jacob. You notice how 
almost always there are two of these generations side by side. And all of this following up on the heels of that promise. That the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. And though this clearly ultimately refers to Christ crushing the head of the serpent. There is, this, there is the offspring plural. And they are at enmity with one another. And you see it in these lines that are paralleled again and again throughout the book. So you see how Paul is being faithful to the intent and flow of the text. In picking this up. It's been said that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who divide the world into two kinds of people. And those who don't. Dividing the world into two kinds of people is fundamental. It's biblical. Of these sons, one was born of a free woman, Abraham's wife Sarah, the other of a slave woman, Sarah's slave, Hagar. And the son of the slave, we're told, was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman according to promise. Remember, God promised Abraham offspring as numerous as the stars of Heaven and the sands of the sea. But after years of childlessness, he feared that Eliezer, his slave, would be heir to all that was his. And God promised him then, in Genesis 15:4, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. When Abraham had lived Ten years in Canaan, he was 85, still without child. Sarah says to him, Behold now, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so it was that Ishmael came to be born of Hagar. And can you see the unbelief? being expressed in this act and the effort to achieve in the flesh what God had promised. When Abraham was 99, Sarah was 90, God told him, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. He didn't ever have to spell it out prior to this point to Abraham. Listen, it's by her. But now after this mess, he makes it clear and obvious. You're missing the point. By her, I When Abraham pleaded at this point for Ishmael, still trying to accomplish it in the flesh, he pleads for Ishmael. God tells him, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes. I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And though Abraham and Sarah laughed. And though they tried to do this by their own efforts. Ultimately their walk with God was one of faith in this promise. They believed. 
And so do you see how this draws upon the contrast Paul has laid down in chapters 3 and 4? Slave and free. Flesh and promise. The seed and children and offspring of Abraham and those who are not. He's spoken of slavery, being under the law, being under its curse, being under sin, under the elemental spirits of this world. He's unfolded the freedom of sonship that comes in the redemption of Jesus Christ, an adoption in Christ. In chapter 3, he opened up with asking them, after having received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise, the guarantee of our inheritance, after receiving the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. But with all of this, Paul then says these things can be interpreted allegorically. The word that you have translated as allegorically comes directly over into the English. It's not really translated, it's transliterated from the Greek. Allegorically. Don't really have a translation. You have this transliteration, and we should all know that as words evolve in English, so that the way you said them back in one era can have a totally different meaning than they do now, it's not good to bring the meaning from either side over into the other whenever you're reading in different contexts. How much more so than whenever we're transliterating it from one alien culture, one ancient culture, into ours. And yet, even so, I have to say that our understanding of allegory, what that word means, was largely intact. I'll refine that a bit in a minute. First, what then is allegory? Without doubt, the greatest allegory The most well-known allegory is John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you simply must. Charles Spurgeon is known to have read it over some 100 times. Uh, Douglas Wilson just continually reads through it slowly. He finishes up, he just starts it again pretty soon thereafter. J.I. Packer has said that it's the most impactful impactful and influential book that has... in his life, it's, it's to be read. And while Bunyan's allegory is biblical, the Bible is not allegorical. And those who have tried to read it in that way have done severe damage to the faith. And that method became really popular early in church history. And there were proponents of it by stalwart defenders of the faith. Men like Augustine would use this method such that he would say that the ark was the church saved by the wood of the cross with the dimensions of the ark corresponding to the dimensions of the human body and the hole in the side of the ark equating to the hole in the side of our Lord. So did Paul plant the seed for the weed of allegory Right here. Well, the word can be used in the sense that we understand as allegory, or it could just have the idea of figuratively, or by way of comparison, 
or as a figure. And that we should understand Paul along those lines, I think is clear from verse 25, where you read that Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And that language isn't so much the language of allegory as it is of typology. If it was allegory, he would have said something like, she represents the present Jerusalem, rather than she corresponds to. Well, then what is typology? Now we've just clouded the matter further. Permit me a lengthy quote from Graham's Goldworthy. I know of no better way to draw it out. He writes, Typology is sometimes written off as just a variant form of allegory, that is thus uncontrolled and invalid. This is a common confusion and one to be studiously avoided. There are some similarities in that allegory and typology both recognize some kind of correspondences. The difference, however, is vital. On the one hand, allegory was a method that saw the old events and images as largely unimportant in themselves. They may have had some significance, but the real task was to get behind them to the deeper spiritual meaning. This deeper meaning was often quite unrelated to the historical meaning. There was no real historical or theological connection between the text and its spiritual meaning. The connection was often made on the most superficial grounds intended toward a kind of free association of ideas. Typology, he says, on the other hand, recognizes that the original historic meaning of the text is theologically related to the later expression that fills it out and usually completes it. So think of David. The history is all absolutely true and is anticipating Christ. He's not an allegory of Christ. He is a shadow of something greater. Graham Goldsworthy goes on. The validity of this approach depends upon the right understanding of how progressive revelation is structured. While allegory sees a mainly a superficial conceptual relationship between the Old Testament events and the Christian gospel, typology sees as part of the theological process of revelation that leads to the antitype or fulfillment in the gospel. The idea is rather than just seeing these fanciful kind of correspondences between the two, progressive revelation says there's one story being told and it's progressively being revealed and it culminates in Christ. And so it's not reading something alien into the text, it's looking at the story of the text. And understanding how it comes to completion in Christ. So allegory is fanciful at best. It is arbitrary in regards to historical events. And often it just deprecates the historical aspect altogether. Whereas typology is rooted in history, faithful to the text and its unfolding storyline. So then... With that clear, and that is important, because if you go wrong in understanding what Paul is doing with the text, what you do is you go wrong with the Bible. 
But with that clear, what was this episode typological of? Well, each woman corresponds to a covenant, we're told, verse 24. Hagar's from Mount Sinai, representing the Mosaic covenant with its laws, bearing children for slavery. But then Paul throws in this, this really big twist. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. You realize how much the Judaizers would have nodded their head to, to what Paul is doing with this text. And the two rubs would be first whenever he made Hagar correspond to Sinai. And then making that really vivid and bold is when he made it correspond to the present Jerusalem. They would have agreed that all humanity is divided in two. But they would have said Hagar is the law, that's the lawless Gentiles. And then you have those who keep the law. The circumcised. If you pervert the law such that you tie salvation to ethnicity and law keeping, you are a slave. You are a Gentile in the sense of being outside of the covenant of the lineage of Cain, Hagar, Ishmael, and Esau. That's what he's saying. The present Jerusalem with all of its law keeping and rejection of Christ to whom that law was meant to point them is in slavery. And you Judaizers who are trying to pervert the gospel such that it's a reversion back to a Christless law are equally in bondage and slavery. Now much is assumed whenever we come to the other side of this. But it's not hard to fill in the blanks of Hagar, Mount Sinai, Mosaic Covenant, present Jerusalem, slavery are one side of this coin. Sarah, Mount Mount Zion, the new covenant, faith, promise, heavenly Jerusalem, freedom, and sonship are on the other side. The true sons of Abraham, Paul has already argued, are those by faith. 3, seven. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the sons of Abraham are heirs. And they look forward to the promised inheritance of that heavenly city which is their mother. Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We await the city and yet she's our mother. There's this proof that Paul lays down toward that end, of this quotation from Isaiah 54, 1, verse 27, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, 
you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The promise was made to the people of God as they're being taken captive to Babylon. For their law breaking. And in the midst of that, there comes a promise. The barren one will bring forth children. These are the children of promise. And this is speaking not of the earthly Jerusalem, but of the heavenly Jerusalem. In one sense, we're already residents of the city because we have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2. And that's why the author of Hebrews can say, you have not come to what may not be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Don't forget this. What Paul is saying is that the law teaches all of this. The problem with the Galatians wasn't that they loved God's law. The problem was they loved a Christless law. They loved a law turned in upon itself. This Perverted law that causes them to rely on self rather than driving them to Christ. And so Paul, speaking to those that he hopes are genuinely brothers, addressing them as such, says, You are children of the promise. Verse 28. They had, after all, received the spirit of promise. They were just now foolishly thinking they could be perfected by the flesh. But because you are children of the promise, he tells them, you can expect persecution. Because just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. When Isaac was weaned, Abraham made a great feast. And on that day, Sarah perceived something. We're told she saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. The ESV there opts for the most common way of translating that word, but it could have been translated jesting, mocking, scoffing. You may think Sarah is overreacting with what she does, but she perceives something that was as old as Cain slaying his brother. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman residing under the same household, and it scared her, I believe. She saw one child excluded from the covenant, and the other one promised it. See, the words you have in verse 30, 
are actually Sarah's. Cast out the slave woman. But those words were endorsed by God. He told Abraham, who was distressed because of this, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do. Do as she tells you, for through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. You realize that Paul, as he's writing this, used to be an Ishmael. A child of the present Jerusalem. Persecuting the Isaac of the heavenly Jerusalem. And now he's pleading for these Isaacs. Don't act like your older brother. Don't be an Ishmael. Concerning the persecution of Isaac, John Stott says, We must expect the same. The persecution of the true church, of Christian believers who trace their spiritual descent from Abraham, is not always by the world, who are strangers and unrelated to us, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. It has always been so. The Lord Jesus was bitterly opposed, rejected, mocked, and condemned by His own nation. The fiercest opponents of the Apostle Paul who dogged his footsteps and stirred up strife against him were the official church, the Jews. The monolithic structure of the medieval papacy persecuted all Protestant minorities with ruthless, unremitting ferocity. And the greatest enemies of the evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, who when they hear the gospel often embrace it, But the church, the establishment, the hierarchy, Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. The greatest persecution we face, even in light of what Stott is saying there, doesn't come with a yell, but with a laugh. The Galatians have failed to realize who their bullies are. Paul asked, am I now your enemy? Verse 11, 16, excuse me. You see, they think that they've come now to be laughing with the Judaizers when they're still being laughed at by the Judaizers. They've been flattered and they failed to understand it's only So that the false teachers themselves will be made much of. The worst persecution that can be thrown at us is not that which draws our own blood, but that which deprecates the blood of Christ. It's far better for the church to face the persecution that Paul once dealt out than the persecution that Paul is now battling here. Better that we face a Paul bent on extinguishing the faith than a Judaizer bent on perverting the faith. Remember, Paul has said that these Galatians have suffered, 3 and verse 4. 
I think these Galatians suffered physically. Paul was being attacked while he evangelized the Galatians. And I believe those attacks soon turned on them. And they weathered those. But now this attack threatens not their bodies, it threatens their souls eternally. The cool kids were laughing at them such that they were ashamed to wear the garments of Christ and now they've exchanged them for a garment, for a letter jacket bearing the emblems of their own accomplishments. And so it is that Paul reminds them, we are not slaves. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And the conclusion that he wants to bring them to, now do you feel the force of it? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm. In light of this onset persecution, this this subtle kind of persecution that flatters, stand firm. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When Ishmael mocks Christ, mock Ishmael. Stand firm. If you've bowed to Jesus, don't bow to men. Their religion of works can only make you a slave. In Christ you are a son. Why would you try to merit something by your own works? How measly and cheap they are when you can have that which was merited by the blood of Christ. In Bunyan's allegory, Christian comes to the home of one worldly wise man with a crushing burden on his back. And he advises him, you want that taken away? Go to the home of Mr. Legality. And as he approaches the hill upon which Mr. Legality resides, we read, so Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help, but behold, when he was got now hard by the hill. It seemed so high. And also that the side of it was next, that was next to the wayside did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture further lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore, there he stood still and he wot not what to do. Also his burden seemed heavier to him than while he was in his way. There came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here therefore he sweat and did quake for fear. So however did Christian come to lose that burden off his back? He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place, there stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. 
So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And then he rejoices and sings and dances. Thus far did I come laden with my sin. Nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Beautiful as that is, I find Bunyan's personal, historical recollection of the day that this truth dawned on him, more beautiful still. He writes, One day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet, was, yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand, there I say was my righteousness, so that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants, He lacks my righteousness, for that was just before Him. I also saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs. Indeed, I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away so that from that time, those dreaded scriptures of God left off to trouble me. The ones that that brought the law to bear upon him. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Saints, brothers, Christ is our righteousness. In Him we are sons. Do not fret that you need gain that which you never could by your own works. And know that there is a danger. Just as there is a danger of missing the cross by way of detour to Mr. Legality's home. There is this danger of turning from the cross. To Mr. Legality's home. And so I exhort you with the words of the apostle again. For freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore. And do not submit again. To a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Holy Father. Thank you for Christ. 
and the freedom, the sonship that we have in Him. Keep us. Do not let us fall. And may we recognize this world's mockery and mock it. May we not bow. May we stand firm in this gospel, this faith, because Christ is all we have and He's all we need. There is no other. All other brings us under curse, under sin, under your law and its judgment. But in Christ, there's redemption and adoption. Praise be to you. Bind our hearts to you there. In Christ's name, amen.